As far as we know, one of the things, one of the things that makes human beings unique amongst other people or actually animals in the animal kingdom is our ability to experience awe and wonder. Dogs seem happy a lot of the time when their tails wag, right? Cats know what they like and they know how to get it. Higher life forms, dolphins and the great apes experience seemingly grief and loyalty and other emotions. But to experience something as awesome and wonderful, more than recognizing an object as simply beautiful or powerful or complex, well, that takes a melding of our experiences and our memories and our knowledge and our awareness of how finite we are. Usually this melding of information and emotions, it's subconscious. It functions more like intuition than something we choose to do. I read this morning, actually Corey read and shared with me that there's a star in the Orion uh, constellation, right? That is, scientists are expecting it to blow any time. And when this happens, at nighttime, the glow will be brighter than the moon such that it casts shadows at night. And you'll be able to see it glowing in the daytime. And that, that, when that happens, my dog might even take notice and say, well, that's, that's something special. And her tail would wag because it always wags, right? Um, and we might even be able to say, that's incredible, Amazing, this glow in the sky that isn't there normally on other days. But as human beings, we can also add knowledge to that experience. And we know that it takes about 600 years for the light from that star to get to us. So if we were to experience that phenomenon this week, we would know that that star actually blew up sometime in the Middle Ages, and we're just now getting report of it at the speed of light, 600 years away. Awe-inspiring, awesome, and wonderful. It, It would make me, right now, even just think of how vast our galaxy is, how small I am and you are. Think of how great the creator of all of this must be. That's how our knowledge and our emotions and our senses all work together to form awe and wonder. Think of a time that you experienced something awesome or wonderful. You probably didn't even plan on it. You probably didn't mean to experience it. You probably were overcome by feelings of awe and wonder quite unexpectedly. It's the difference between seeing the stars at night. Lately, uh, we put the dog out at night. Well, actually, you see the stars at 4.30, don't you, these days? But you go under the stars and you see them all the time, and there they are. It's the difference between that and that time when you go camping, and you're under the stars, and you have space and time, and it hits you like it doesn't hit you at other times. How beautiful, how big, how small we are. And it comes across in the the tear that forms in the corner of your eye or the lump in your throat, and all of a sudden, awe and wonder are upon you. It happens in the birth of a child, or the sunset with the right person at your side, or a musical performance at just the right intersection of excellence in music and relevance to where you are in your life at that moment. Oftentimes we experience awe and wonder in the simple things in life, the things that money can't buy. What's more awesome than the deep and fierce love of good friends or lovers or parent for a child? 
What's more wonderful than watching a, a, a new orca calf in the San Juan Islands as the sun is low on the horizon? In our efforts as human beings to replicate feelings of awe and wonder, we create lots of synthetic alternatives that, that, that help us create the feelings that we get with awe and wonder. So we know relationships can be really awesome and awe-inspiring. So we create social media where you can have the thrill of getting a new friend every day, uh, but without any of the trappings of like, you know, commitment and, and pesky things like that. We love our endorphins that we get from awe and wonder. And so we, we create and use substances that help us feel good for short periods of time. Low-hanging fruit here would be drugs and alcohol, but there's all kinds of things that we can ingest and take to make ourselves feel these experiences. And at the, all at the same time, they actually numb us to real awe and wonder. There are a few things that I can think about as awesome and as wonderful as the God of the universe humbling himself and becoming a human being. How amazing that the being who literally spoke the universe into existence, the infinite one, would make himself finite and vulnerable. In a world of bling and shock value, in a culture where only those who make the biggest scene get the attention, the awe and wonder of Jesus is so easily relegated to a, a manger scene with some lights. Our sits on top of an old bookcase in our dining room. But the shiniest things in our house are the Christmas tree and the presents and the wrappers. During the first century, the apostle John experienced a similar problem. The incarnation of Jesus being sidelined as less than center stage. Some Christians in the region of Asia Minor were being heavily influenced by the beginnings of a popular Greek movement that would later become Gnosticism. And the core of this teaching, crudely spoken, is that the goal of life is to escape the physical world. That what is truly awesome and what is truly wondrous in the world is in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm. And therefore, this movement, this group of thinkers had little place for a God who would actually have become a human being, who would leave the spiritual and join the physical so what these people did is they downplayed the incarnation of Jesus. And they spoke of him more as, oh, he's a great teacher who showed us the way to finally be free someday of this broken world. Now John, the apostle and pastor, what, what he did is he realized that not only was this pre-Gnostic teaching inherently false, like it's not what the Bible says, but that it would infect Christianity and turn this movement into something completely unrecognizable. In essence, if Jesus didn't actually come and didn't actually live and didn't actually die and didn't actually rise from the grave, if all he did was teach and show us a certain way to live, then there is no salvation by grace. Like basically what you and I have to do is follow all the teachings because that's all we've got. How many of you can do that perfectly? We'd be in big trouble. And the book we call 1 John was most likely a sermon or a collection of teachings more than a letter. And John wrote this and probably taught this to the early church in Asia Minor, Ephesus, and those churches in modern-day Turkey. And I think he did it to get these churches 
back into alignment with the truth, back on an intersect course with the awe and wonder of Jesus' incarnation. And here's how he starts that address in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Would you stand if you're able? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have partnership with us. And indeed, our partnership is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus the Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the incarnation, for your becoming flesh and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. As we explore this text and what it means for us, would you reignite in us awe and wonder over who you are and what you've done? Amen. You may be seated. I know it's Christmas Sunday, and I know that that passage didn't have any angels, or any shepherds, or any Mary, or any Joseph, or any babies. But it's all about the incarnation of Jesus. While many of the Christians in John's ideal audience were looking for awe and wonder in the spiritual world, John reminds them of the earthy, gritty, physical nature of God in Jesus the Christ. To an ancient reader, like if you were a first century Greco-Roman person in Asia Minor and you read this opening passage, John's argument is clearly the type of thing you would hear in the court of law. He references multiple witnesses. He puts forth multiple points of sensory experiences. John the apostle uh, and and the other apostles heard and saw and touched the incarnate Jesus. What he's saying, by not saying it, is that this isn't a myth or a legend that we can simply take or leave, like, oh, you can choose to believe it or not. The physicality, the miracle of God becoming flesh is awesome and wonderful and essential to our faith. Look at the specificity of his argument. Not only witnesses of multiple sensory experiences with Jesus, but also the meaning behind who Jesus is. And in particular, As we walk through this, I want to point out three aspects of John's message that reveal the awesome and wonderful nature of Jesus and his incarnation. The first is this, that Jesus' birth wasn't some random miracle or some coincidence. This is nothing short of a fulfillment of God's long plan of rescue. Jesus is the one who is from the beginning In John's gospel, which uh, uh, Michelle read earlier, uh, we see the longer version of this idea that Jesus is the word who is with God and who is God. It is through Jesus that the world came into being at all. And it is Jesus who is the giver of life eternal. 
Now, when you consider the painstaking patience and forethought that went into planning his move, the right time in history, the right moment of coming together of world powers under the Roman Empire, such that only during this time were things backwater enough to where Jesus could be born without much fanfare in Bethlehem, while at the same time being sophisticated enough to have all the languages of the world Hellenized, to have all roads leading through and from Rome, leading, uh, having a, a period in history where trade with the East and the West were all melding in one spot, and the message could get out, the mixing of cultures and religions. What genius that Jesus came into that particular time and that particular place. What poetic justice that he would use the efficiency of the empire to spread the gospel to a world uh, that would ultimately undo the empire altogether. I just think that's really cool. Jesus in the flesh is the fulfillment of all the prophecies that pointed to the coming Messiah and the coming kingdom of God. The prophets and and later Jesus and the apostles spoke of a day, um, uh, the kingdom of God, uh, the age to come, the end of the age. All of these are the terms for the same thing. And it is when God's reign would come to earth in its fullness, when all things will be made new, a new heavens and a new earth will come and establish itself here in the land. It will be a day when evil is cast out and there's no more tears or corruption. This is not an escapist gospel. This is an earthy, physical, embodied reality that is yet to come. And in light of the broken state of our world, our fractured relationships, our failing politics, our gut-wrenching tragedies like, like the Sunnyland community tragedy, In light of these things, we don't need pie in the sky or head in the sand. Just wait for Jesus to come someday. We long for a substantially new creation, for new hearts and new minds and new bodies, all that work well, all that love well, all that relate to each other well. That's the promise of this new age. And what we get to see in Jesus, the incarnate one, in his physical life is so much more than just good teaching. We see in his person a foretaste of the kingdom of God. Jesus was literally like a mobile, moving kingdom of God. In fact, John's gospel says that God tabernacled among us, that You know, the tabernacle is the tent of his presence in in the Exodus. And so Jesus, wherever he was in his person during his ministry, the kingdom of God is present there with him. Evil demons would flee from his presence, right? Hardened hearts were softened and broken hearts were comforted. Jesus healed broken bodies of the sick and the maimed, and he opened the spiritual eyes and ears of those jaded by years of sin and oppression and trauma. Wherever Jesus was, evil couldn't stand and sickness couldn't stand. Oppression couldn't stand. Marginalization didn't have a place where Jesus was. He brought things together. And when we look at that, we say that in miniature is what the kingdom of heaven will be like for us. How awesome and how wonderful is our God who came in the flesh. But of course, there's more. 
Jesus, God in flesh, didn't merely come to us so he could check all of the prophecy boxes. Like, see, Isaiah said about 14 things about the Messiah. I have to come and check those off. And then Jeremiah said these, and Daniel said those. And no, Jesus didn't come like a robot to just fulfill prophecy. John says that Jesus is the word of life manifested. It's like, like a computer program in today's world with a 3D printer. It's like not just ones and zeros in the digital world. It actually took form. It's not just some idea or some spiritual being. Jesus was manifested among us. In other words, when we read the Gospels and experience the stories of how Jesus lived and taught and how we related to people, we are seeing exactly how God lives and how God teaches and how God relates to people. The new age to come is not just about bodies that don't get sick or break down, as wonderful as that's going to be. It's not just about having heads and hearts working in concert with God, as amazing as that will be. It's also very much about knowing God more personally and more intimately than we can imagine. And unfortunately, when you ask around, people's perceptions of God are funny, to put it a nice way. People who think God is angry all the time and judgmental. People who think God must be some sort of bore, like this too dignified creature to interact with any way uh, that's relatable to us. People who think that God must be scary, like a, a distant, detached father who's too checked out in the garage or doing his work all the time and doesn't have time for anyone else. The good news of the incarnation is that Jesus dispels all of those myths of a stuffy, mean, distant God. And instead, what we see, if we actually read the Gospels, is a God who's compassionate. We see Jesus crying with his friends who are suffering. We read about him taking time to stop and listen to the concerns of beggars on the side of the road or to women and children who so often got passed over by people in power. In Jesus, we see someone who's not merely nice. Like, there's a lot of nice people that you and I know. Nice people try and always make us feel better. Nice people like to make us feel like they know that we know that they care. That's nice. I like nice people. I try and be a nice guy. But Jesus is more than nice. Jesus is loving. And he's so loving that he might forego niceties so that he can get to what is really going on underneath the surface of our masks and our defenses. He knows our hearts. He knows our deepest thoughts. And he knew the woman at the well and her sin, that she was ashamed of this sin. And when he pried it out ever so surgically, he stayed with her. And he showed her that her fear of not letting on to who she really was, she didn't need to be afraid in his presence. And that's the kind of God we have. The one who knows our ugliest stuff that we're afraid to get out there. He knows that stuff. And he dares to stay with us and to walk with us and to heal us step by step. So thankful for that. When we read the Gospels, we see a Jesus, or we see in Jesus a God who's funny. Like, there's some great zingers in the Gospels. Jesus is like, he's funny, and he's kind of a 
like a smart A. Um, a God who knows how to party. You know, he's always partying. He's, he's making wine when the wine runs out. He, he, he's eating with different sorts of people. He's, he eats a lot. He's a God who knows how to hang out with the educated and the simple, the blue collar and the white collar. In Jesus, we see a God who is always the smartest person in the room. You know, that's another myth that I think people have is God is this just benign, like, I don't know, like the nice old grandpa with the big white beard who is a nice guy, but he's not really with the world, right? Like Jesus is always the smartest guy in the room, but he also knows how to make everyone else in the room know that they're valuable. That is, that's the God that we have manifested in Jesus. And of course, at Christmas, we remember that in Jesus, we see a God who's humble, who encouraged shame on himself for the joy of rescuing you and rescuing me. What an awesome and wonderful God we have. If you haven't made your New Year's resolution yet, let me just suggest, it's always a good idea to read through the four gospels consistently throughout the year. Just always, like, I don't care what else you read. Like, I I read the Psalms a lot too. Uh, Let me just suggest, always be in a gospel. And when you're done with the end of uh, John, just start back in Matthew again. Just always be in a gospel. If you're ever frustrated in your spiritual walk, like, I just don't know Jesus like I want to, um, which I knew Jesus better, which I was more intimate with him, like, read the Gospels. <laughs> that's where, I mean, he's not, like, stuck in there. Uh, but that's where we see what he's really like. That's where, he, where we see what he thinks about us. Finally, we come to the main point, I think, of John's message in this first four verses. He invites us to know the joy, the joy of participating in Jesus' work now. John is clear that he and the first disciples had firsthand experience with Jesus. Like they knew and heard and touched and saw and followed and ate with the eternal word made flesh. John and his apostolic friends had a unique partnership in the good news of Jesus and his kingdom work. But John is saying that through faith, through trust in Jesus, we can also become partners of that gospel. We too can have family fellowship with the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We too can become part of the family of God, the partners in his mission, the church. What John is saying is that we're not merely called to believe some things about Jesus, like to get our our theology straight. Like, well, you know what? You guys were screwed up. You only believed in uh, Jesus' teaching, but what you really need if you're going to be a true Christian is to believe in his incarnation. Yeah, but what he's saying is, I'm inviting you not just to think the right thoughts about Jesus. I'm calling you to do the stuff that Jesus did. I'm calling you into the mission of Jesus. We're invited into a guild, into a partnership, into a movement. Mandalorian fans, this is the way, right? Okay, thank you. How, sorry, Tommy. <clears throat> the end is really great, though. How awesome and how wonderful that the maker of heaven and earth, the inventor of D- DNA, of physics, the guy who thought of chemistry, who makes snow, the one who thought of taste buds and emotions and love and longing, the God of the universe became human to reveal himself to us. 
to rescue us from the consequences of our own rebellion against him. And, and he invites us into the work of being his agents in the world. If you have been wondering, like, what is my place in the world? If you've been questioning your calling or your value, question no longer. Jesus invites you right where you are to join him in loving and caring for your neighbors and for his creation, his planet. And that's something you can do as a child or as an adult, as a student, or as a worker, as a retired person, or a person on on disability. You can do that as a person who manages a home, or is an artist, and everything else I didn't say. And that is awesome and wonderful news. God is born among us at Christmas. He's come near that we might draw near to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the familiarity of the story because it means we've heard it before. It means we've encountered you before. But I also just voice out loud the, the hazard of being over-familiar with the story. We thank you for your servant John who took a different tack to the Christmas story. Who reminds us of the reality of what it cost you to become incarnate, to who reminds us of how gritty and physical and with us you are. And I thank you that you don't disappoint, that when we actually look at the Gospels, when we actually take the time to read about who you are and the kinds of things you do and the way that you feel about us and about people, you never disappoint. I pray, Lord, that you would overcome us like children with awe and wonder, that you would help us to trust you and to joyfully join you in your kingdom work. Amen.